2: Your
3: <laughs> good morning, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM. Uh, it's Genevieve and I'm here with Lauren. Hi Lauren. Good morning. Hi. Good morning. I'm good. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> I'm okay, yeah, I'm getting there. We're obviously one week down in stage four lockdown in Melbourne here. And I think, yeah, it's been a bit to get used to.
4: (laughs) I guess. Mm. Yeah,
3: yeah, everyone's getting there. I saw a lot of, I mean, it's been some nice days. There's people walking and doing their thing. But I think, yeah,
4: it's kind of just, yeah, grinding everyone. It's so weird. The photos of the city at night are just like yeah unbelievable I can't believe it's shut down completely yeah
3: yeah the curfew as well I think like the Mm. it's gonna sound so like the smallest thing I could like pick at (laughs) from stage (laughs) four is like I mean getting late minute last minute food or like even little things like that that like um, I never think about at all and like suddenly I'm like oh It's, like, 7.30 and, like, I don't have (laughs) anything in the fridge. (laughs) Like, Uber Eats even, like, doesn't do anything beyond, like, 7.30 or something. But, yeah.
4: Small. That's the smallest thing. No, but it's stuff, like, I really, I've been talking a lot with my housemate this weekend about how, like, what changes will stick once this is all over. And I do wonder if stuff like this is going to make people... I don't know if, if it will change our sense of time and like 24 hour availability and definitely.
3: Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Like adjust everyone's, I guess, like during the day you get your groceries, one person mm. gets their groceries at the time. <laughs> that rule. Yeah. Sorry, but at least stand outside your one. door. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. Like obviously if you're in shared living spaces like you're not i guess yeah. not like a family home like that rule just like works diabolically bad yeah um, like carrying everyone's groceries home um like a few of my friends you know they don't have cars and stuff and they're like on their bikes like with like with the whole household of. <laughs> yeah no but it's
4: back to that thing <laughs> of you know the the pandemic has really shown how we how we order society and how we prefer society to function and it's about you know nuclear families and intimate partners definitely be damned everybody else kind of thing so no
3: definitely yeah yeah yeah. um yeah that's a really really good point actually like if you're not in that family unit then um Mm. things are so much more difficult I guess to organize within the rules um Mm. okay now we're gonna do some news headlines this morning I've got a few Um, A few things that I wanted to mention that I found um, quite interesting. These are just from um, The Guardian. Um, I've got, so Instagram actually did a, it was a very controversial, um, it was very recently, but they did a censorship on a black model's photo um, that reignited, I guess, some claims of racist bias. And sorry, I'm getting this information from The Guardian. Um, There's been like a new hashtag. It's called hashtag I want to see Naomi um and it's just kind of an outcry from to the social media platform that removed um naomi nicholas williams's photo it was her um so she's a woman of color and she's the photo was her nude but she's um uh wrapped her arms are wrapped around her breasts and she's kind of looking up at the sky in this kind of euphoric like natural light it's like a beautiful photo but um Immediately when it was put up, um, Instagram had deleted the photo, and Nicholas Williams had been warned her account could be shut down. And I guess it kind of begs the question of, um, yeah, racist bias in the censorship, um, censorship thing of Instagram, and obviously female nudity and um, women of colors nudity. So yeah, that was I found that pretty shocking.
4: Mm, they did something similar recently to um, Gigi Hadid. Instagram. They censored her, um, like a. Proud, she's a Palestinian woman, and some kind of pro-Palestinian Instagram post yeah. was taken down. That's right. Like yeah. Blatant silencing of the voices yeah. of women of color, and yeah. Yeah. No, I no, I, I heard about that. It was
3: she uploaded a photo of her dad's old Palestinian passport, which obviously that's I right. Yeah. They make them anymore. Yeah, and it got taken down like immediately. Yeah. It's, yeah. Um, Instagram. Cool. What are
4: you doing? Yeah,
3: (laughs) it's interesting though because like obviously this censorship there's been a lot of censorship of um i mean youtube censoring alt-right videos Mm. and like twitter obviously censoring trump um and facebook now censoring trump um i think quite recently and yeah still the censorship of um women's bodies and especially women of color's bodies um Mm. on instagram which is yeah um In terms of, um, obviously, the disaster that's happened in Lebanon, Beirut, Lebanon, um, we were just going to mention that and have a bit of a chat about
4: that. Um, Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think... So it's interesting, a couple of weeks ago I had to do a research task about Lebanon and the protests that started in October last year because that's really... Yeah, like all of this has just been going on for so long, um, and it's just—it's like it's just heartbreaking, isn't it? This country has been yeah. through so much already. From October to January, rebelling against a government that was, by all accounts, manifestly corrupt. Finally, yeah. get a new government in January, then just economic collapse, and now this awful explosion that yeah. appears to have been—and I, I mean. I think it, there's still investigations ongoing, but it appears to have been through some kind of negligence. Yeah, yeah. And cost cutting measures. Yeah. Um, and the protests are just, I just pulled this up because I thought it was a nice, succinct kind of, as of today, the um, AAP are reporting that protesters have taken over the Lebanese Foreign Ministry in Beirut stormed the Ministry of Economics, stormed the Association of Banks in Lebanon and have taken over the Energy Ministry. Oh, my God. In response to this perceived corruption and inaction of the government. Yeah. Because um, yeah. they've just taken everything from people. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was reading, actually, that the president, um, I yeah, had still hadn't ruled out... He kind of been advocating that, like, oh, it might have been a missile strike. Like, we're not ruling that out at the moment. When it's quite yeah. obviously, um, yeah. Well, it was sitting there for like seven years or some, like, quite a mm. long time. This load of, I'm gonna get the scientific name wrong, something nitrate. <laughs> <right? laughs> um, but yeah, absolutely devastating, devastating.
4: Mm. Um, yeah, I think I there's a few. Um, a few. Sorry. I interrupted you no no you go please (laughs) I was just going to say there seems to be a lot of um, organizers in Melbourne channeling to get material aid Um, so sending money is obviously hard because people can't access a lot of money at the moment because banks are quite shut down but there are some organizations just doing um, transfers directly to material aid funds there so um, if people want to I think there's a woman on Twitter named Janine Karlick who is organising here, yeah. Um, And there's a poet named Omar Seker doing the same thing. So if people want to um, kind of get it to on the ground sources, yeah, yeah, definitely.
3: I think we could definitely put those up on um, the website Mm. as well because I mean it can be really confusing about where to put your money and to make sure that it's going to the right place. Yeah. Um, All right. Now we might. let you guys know about what's actually coming up oh, in yeah. the show. <laughs> um, I was just doing alternative news this week and I actually decided to focus on um, Hungary. I know that, um, mm. yeah, I know um, Hungary is kind of in and out of the news a little bit, but I think there's been a lot of talk um, in the media about obviously authoritarian style countries and the coronavirus pandemic and kind of what's been going on with a seizure of power and especially in Hungary, um, President Viktor Orban has um, in early March uh, got the power to rule by decree and although that was Um, had recently been repealed, Um, the laws implemented in that time, so uh, heaps of attacks on non-governmental organisations, heaps of attacks on um, the media, especially one of the most popular um, media branches recently called Index. They fired their head editor-in-chief and about half the staff um, left um, and also, uh, attacks on the LGBTQI community where it's been made illegal to change your gender after your birth. And that's been a new law. So it's kind of terrible. Yeah. It's really scary. And the European union, um, actually I was reading also the European union is very reluctant to step in, um, with authoritarian countries, especially in the EU, so Poland and Hungary, um, they actually gave them more financial aid with coronavirus than Italy and Spain. And it's kind of like a lot of people have looked at that as like trying to keep the peace in a way. So there's no uh, mm. reason for disruption within the country, but yeah, it's oh yeah, it's a bit of a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit of a disaster, but I, yeah, I'm just going to be talking through, I guess, the history also some stuff about um, immigration laws that they've implemented there. But
4: yeah, a little bit of... I'm so excited to listen. (laughs) Yeah,
3: yeah. It's pretty pretty interesting and pretty scary, but really important um, Mm. to get out there. But uh, Lauren, you have an interview. Who did you interview?
4: Oh, I did. I spoke with um, Julia Kretzenbacher, who is the Vice President of Liberty Victoria, which is... Australia's oldest civil liberties um, advocacy organization, and I just kind of wanted a bit of clarity um, and a bit of an update about this state of disaster state of emergency. Um, I think there's just been so much information in Victoria over the last few days, so she just talked me through um, what the situation is with fines, what policing powers are at the moment, all that sort of thing, so yeah, also very terrifying in a <laughs> little bit of a different way, but yeah um yeah yeah no sure that some would be people draw some parallels
3: yeah no that would be great I think there has been a little bit of confusion about the rules they've put a, in great detail in some um areas mm. but not in others um yeah. well, and just this
4: idea that they can um you know that a single person can overrule the premier and suspend a law yeah. is like it, it just is mind-blowing so yeah anyway it was an interesting chat
3: yeah no i'll be very interested in listening to that um all right well without further ado we might um, <laughs> get on with it <laughs> um awesome. all right uh yeah we hope you enjoy the show and thanks lauren thanks for chatting It was really lovely
4: thanks genevieve
5: It's lost in the sauce, twin the womb and the back. Folks with no drive, we call it new, for that, boomerang flavor, so I keep on coming back. I keep on coming back. I keep on coming back. People claiming hoods that they don't even know. Suck your stomach in peep, poppin' in poles. The gram got holes, actin' like they cinnamon. I don't play that, my nigga. just take my flip and go. On about your business, see, I'm back up on my grizzly, barely getting by, but the Lord is my witness. Respect. My tribe, I only rock with solid women, paradigm shift, this rage against the system, Yes, yeah, all love, homegirls know what's up, real ones move in silence, but I don't bite my tongue, it's estrogen in mine, it got me caring too much, I rearranged a few things, it got my feng shui up. Front room with my cousin, thinking a master plots. Hold the world for ransom, better give me what you got. I ain't got time to be playing with y'all. Please remove the mask, save the shit for Money Gras Face it with my moose set While he gone, conversation won't keep the John up in his draws. The realization that we all must come to is you gotta let people do what they gon' do. So I'ma show love.
6: We all registered. (laughs) You made your vote count, right? Yeah. What we gon' do now? We from the slums. We make cake from crumbs. Nigga, we hold it down. Ain't nothing changed. Obama gave us hope. But every time we turn around, another nigga getting smoked. Either by the police or by a nigga more likely to be us. Cody. Same old streets. Only polls niggas know is what they dancing on. And to be honest, I don't know if they got the answers wrong. Why invest in this wicked system that traded plantations for prison? Nigga, we know the difference. They go punch paint pictures. I'm Sharif in minutes, sitting on the freezer trying to keep niggas from destroying their liver. But they ain't listening either. But I still show love.
3: That was a song titled Say Paulo by Il Camille and featuring Punch and Rose Gold.
7: Isolated? Quarantined? Need some essentials but can't leave the house? Or just having a hard time dealing with everything at the moment? Queer Aid Nam is a new mutual aid group of organized volunteers. We're here, we're queer, and we've got your back. Whether or not that's how you identify, nobody should be suffering because capitalism or the state didn't provide what they needed. That's why we're working to strengthen our communities through solidarity. Put in a request for help, and we'll match you with a volunteer in your area who can either pick up groceries or other essentials for you, help you run errands, cook meals for you, or check in with how you're going. If you or someone you know is having a hard time, or if you want to join the volunteer list, find us on QueerAidMelbourne.org, or search for us via Facebook. COVID-19 Queer Aid Nam, Melbourne. So tell your family and your friends, and don't forget your neighbours. That's QueerAidMelbourne.org, a 3CR supporter.
3: Good morning, you're listening to 3CR on 855 a.m., And this is Genevieve on Tuesday Breakfast. This is Alternative News, and today I'm going to focus on a country that's slid a little bit under the radar in recent news, and that is Hungary. Many of you may have heard of Prime Minister Viktor Orbán, the leader of Hungary since 2010, and the flurry of conservative ideals and authoritarian-style policies that surround him. But the story about Orbain runs deeper than the shocking headlines you might read once a month. His political power during COVID-19 is one of many examples, especially in Eastern Europe, that is aimed to capitalise on power and refine conservative policies, as citizens are at their most vulnerable. we will be running through how Orbain and his political party Fidesz have become so successful politically, and what impact this is having on Europe and the world. Alright, so on June 18th of this year, German Chancellor Angela Merkel addressed to the German Parliament her concern that authoritarian leaders had used COVID-19 to, and this is in her words, harm people's dignity and undermine people's human rights. This is something we need to stand up against. This is most likely directed at leaders like Viktor Orbán, who for the last 10 years of his power have worked to criminalise those who oppose any policies or ideals implemented, weaken Hungary's judiciary and strengthen its control over the media. That fact that Orbán has also claimed leadership for so long can make you question the legitimacy of the public elections as well. So we'll start at the beginning, where the main reason Orbán's party claimed leadership way back in 2010 was due to anti-government protests. These protests were started because a video of the newly successful Prime Minister at the time, Ferenc Gerashny, was leaked, Uh, the video depicted a private speech where he confessed that his Hungarian Socialist Party had lied to win the 2006 election and had done nothing worth mentioning in the previous four years of governing. The Socialist Party had growing dissatisfaction with the public due to the plague of corruption scandals and deepened by the global financial crisis that was happening around that time. The Socialist government also imposed harsh austerity measures in an attempt to rein in its ballooning budget deficits even before the global crisis. Anti-government protests erupted and it seriously damaged support for left-wing parties. Steel barriers were even erected around Parliament to protect it from tens of thousands of protesters. Consequently, in 2010, Victor Orbán's National Conservative Party, Fidesz, won by a landslide majority. Just a year later, in 2011, Orbán and Fidesz Party orchestrated a new constitution, and this was the first to be adopted within a democratic framework and following free election, because the last one was adopted under communist control. Uh, this immediately came with criticism. Among the claims critics make are that it was adopted without sufficient input from the opposition and society at large, and that it reflects the ide- ideology of the ruling Fidesz party and enshrines it in, in office that is rooted in a conservative Christian worldview, despite Hungary not being a particularly devout country and that it curtails and politicises previously independent institutions. Orbain defended against these claims, stating the new constitution was necessary step to distance Hungary from communism and moving in a democratic future. Uh, this statement actually becomes pretty ironic with what happened next. A new electoral law was also passed on... In December 2011, the Fidesz and its coalition partner, Christian Democratic People's Party, unilaterally approved the new bill using their two-thirds majority, ignoring the left-wing opposition's protests. The NGO Political Capital noted in its analysis that the newly adopted law shifts the election system towards the maturation principle Uh, which may be the cause of possible future disproportional outcomes in favour of individual parliamentary seats. This is resulting in an emergence of voting method like first-past-the-post voting. In 2012, Urbain passed laws using his supermajority to pass uh, legislation revising eligibility for voting. According to the citizens who had the right to vote, should have been involved in a pre-registration process no later than 15 days before polling day. And to critics, this process would have made it harder to vote the party of power, while also threatened free suffrage with the determination of the time limit. Orbain and the Fridesh party were re-elected, of course, in 2014, The flaunting of Orbán's Eurocentric and nationalist idealism was truly felt in 2015 during the European migrant crisis. Hungary erected a border barrier on its border with Croatia and Serbia. It was following an increased influx of asylum seekers and migrants into the Schengen area, despite the Dublin regulation. Hungary stated that the EU was too slow to act, And according to BBC News, many of the migrants currently in Hungary have been refusing to register there in order to continue their journeys to Germany before seeking asylum. This isn't the only time Hungary has made attempts to stop immigration. Changes to the laws were also made in 2015. The changes make it a crime and punishable by up to eight years in prison to enter the country except at official crossing points and declared Serbia a safe third country, with those entering via Serbia liable to summary return there. Criminal convictions are accompanied by one to two three-year re-entry bans to Hungary that the Hungarian Office of Immigration and Nationality may designate as applying to the entire European Union. Also, in 2015, Orbain was criticized online and in person for writing in a German newspaper that it was important to secure his nation's border from mainly Muslim migrants, and this is a quote by him, to keep Europe Christian. Within his 10 years in power, there have also been consistent attacks on the media and governmental groups that oppose Orbain. A law that came into force on July 2018, that it made it a crime to help refugees, asylum seekers or other migrants. The law is designed to intimidate people who work or volunteer for aid groups, and they could be jailed for up to a year for their work under the new law. According to the Human Rights Watch website, another law in 2018 criminalises a wide range of legitimate activities that are essential to expose and hopefully moderate the suffering caused by the government's policies and practices on refugees and migrants, from violence at borders to lengthy detention in container camps. Legal professionals and aid workers will now take personal risks if they attempt to carry on their work advising asylum seekers and migrants about their rights in Hungary, or even simply sharing information or building volunteer groups. The law passed in 2017 in the Fidesz Majority Parliament requires organisations to register as foreign-funded organisations If they receive over a certain threshold of financial support from abroad and to use this pejorative label at every public appearance. According to the New York Times in late 2018, hundreds of nominally independent media outlets controlled by the Prime Minister's allies were given to another foundation controlled by Mr. Orbane's confidants media and competition regulators were barred from scrutinising the transactions, according to a decree issued by Mr. Orban in early December 2018 on grounds that the ownership changes were of strategic national interest. And even just recently, another attack on free press with one of Hungary's most popular news sources, Index, the editor-in-chief was fired and, And with that, scores of uh, journalists quit in protest as the government moved closer to near-complete control over the country's media landscape. The site was one of the many independent media outlets in Central Europe that have come under sustained financial and political pressure from governments bent on controlling public discourse. Orbain is now in his third term as Prime Minister where his longevity in power has been put down to security constitutional supermajorities in two subsequent elections, despite receiving less than 50% of the popular vote. And coronavirus has given the perfect leverage to consolidate his power further. At the beginning of the pandemic, Orbain introduced a law that gave the government the power to legislate by decree, without parliamentary scrutiny and without the possibility of an early election. Although the law has been repealed, the legal instrument used for its repeal preserves many of the emergency powers it afforded itself earlier. So under the new bill that has superseded the legislation from March, On the advice of Hungary's chief medical officer, the government can declare a state of medical emergency and therefore curtail freedom of movement and assembly for six months. The emergency would be renewable indefinitely, according to legal analysis by the Hungary-Helsinki Committee. Both introducing and ending this legal measure would be entirely up to the government, with no parliamentary scrutiny and little to no possibility for judicial review. The pandemic also created two new categories of crimes in Hungary. Interfering with the quarantine could actually lead to a prison sentence of up to three years, or even five years if perpetrated by a group, or eight if anyone died as a result. The second one is to claim or spread a falsehood or claim or spread a distorted truth in relation to the emergency in a way that is suitable for alarming or agitating a large group of people, which is also uh, punishable by up to three years of imprisonment. Just recently, in a law that legal observers believe is the first of its kind in Europe, Hungary will now tie an individual's gender to the person's sex and chromosomes at birth restricting later modifications on official documents. So this is pretty much uh, a blatant attack on the transgender community in Hungary, meaning that you will not be able to change your gender after you're born. It was put forward a day after Mr. Orbán was granted the authority to rule by decree to defend against the coronavirus, supposedly, a move that was approved by Parliament. Since then, he has used his powers to seize control of a publicly traded company and declare territory belonging to an opposition-led city in Hungary. He labelled it a special economic zone, which has stripped the city of a significant portion of its tax base. Unfortunately, at this point, little can be done by the European Union to interfere and implement sufficient human rights for the citizens of Hungary. Authoritarian-minded leaders around the world, as we've seen, have used the coronavirus emergency to consolidate power. And in a hasty effort to show that it was doing something to help during the virus crisis, the European Union repurposed €37 billion in structural aid funds designed to help newer and poorer members for the virus aid. So the result was that Hungary and Poland, and Poland is also known to have an up and coming already implemented authoritarian leader, uh, each got considerably more money than virus ravaged Italy or Spain. So rather than punish two governments that have challenged the democratic values at the heart of the European project, the warped allocation of the money with little oversight or requirement to respect the rule of law looked more like a reward, and it raised fresh questions about the European Union's reluctance to criticise two governments that continue to flout the European standards of democracy and rule of law. Hungary is just one of many countries that have flexed their authoritarian abilities during the pandemic, and also one of many, especially in Eastern Europe, Poland, Belarus, Romania, Bulgaria and Serbia all have a track record and also a recent track record of corruption and authoritarianism. It seems quite obvious that with economic decay and the validation of an international health crisis, citizens are being stripped of democratic human rights left, right and centre. And the question begs now, when everything will eventually turn somewhat back to normal will the new economic decay that's been shown through the coronavirus pandemic intensify the situation in hungary or will the eu soon be
4: able to step in
5: Hi, everybody. Sarah Carroll here. You might remember me from some of the shows I used to do on 3CR, like uh, Vinyl and Shellac and Gasp and, of course, Hot Damn Tamale, which I presented alongside Werner Martin for many years. Uh, I came into 3CR as a very young person uh, and learned a lot about not only radio and broadcasting, but also the amazing diversity and uh, richness of the community that we're operating in and I'd like to say to all of you and I hope that you're all staying connected as you always have done through this wonderful radio station that I hope that you're finding some comfort from uh, your association with 3CR from the shows that you listen to the music that's played and also the up-to-date and incredibly accurate and well-researched information that you receive. God bless you all or whoever bless you all and uh, take care.
1: Brown skin girl, skin just like pearls.
6: Best thing in the world. I never change it for anybody else. Singing, brown skin girl, skin just like pearls.
2: the best thing in the world. I never charge it, like it for anybody else. Singing. So she really grew up boy like me. Don't believe in nothing but the Almighty. Just a little jeans and a pure whitey She never dreamed we ever be nobody wifey. Yeah. She she wanna mean a pretty but your heart artist on me. Playin' like a villain, cause she got in her way. Tonight, I, yet, I am walking away. Nine to by mine and I grind, yeah, yeah. Tonight I might fall in love. Depending on how you hold me I'm glad that I'm calming down can not let no one come control me Keep dancing and call it love She fights it by falling slowly If ever you are in doubt Remember what mama told me Brown skin girl That skin just like pearls You're back against the world I never tried you for anybody else A brown skin girl That skin just like pearls The best thing in all the world I never tried you for anybody else, eh. like a trophy when Naomi's walking She need an Oscar for that pretty dark
1: skin Pretty like Lupita when the camera's closing the 11 when my killer's rollin'. rolling I think tonight she might break her right Melanin too dark to throw her shade She runs her business and winds her waist. Roll like
2: 24K okay. Tonight I might fall in love Depending on how you hold me I'm glad that I'm calming down Can't let no one come control me Keep dancing and calling love She fighting but falling slowly If ever you are in doubt Remember what mama told me Brown skin girl Got skin just like pearls. You're against the world I never tried you for anybody else Brown skin girl just like girls The best thing about the world I
1: never, never tried, tried you for anybody
2: else Have oh. you looked in the mirror lately?
1: Wish you could trade eyes with me Cause there's complexities in complexion But your skin is glow like diamonds Take me like the earth you be giving back To everything alive, baby, know your words I love everything about you from your nappy curls To every single curve, your body natural Same skin that was broken, me same skin taking over Most things are to focus, you. But when you're in the room, they notice
3: Anybody else singing. That was a song by Beyonce and it was titled Brown Skin Girl and it's a song on her newly released album
4: called The Lion King, The Gift. Cool. All right. So you are on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast and we're here with Julia Kretzenbacher who is the Vice President of Liberty Victoria. Thank you for joining us, Julia. Thank you. Nice to be here. So COVID-19, Stage 4, brutal lockdown, um, Liberty Victoria has had a lot to say, um, and I think it's really important that we get Liberty's perspective out to as many people as possible. So I wanted to start today with um, the issue of fines. Uh, the Victorian government has confirmed in the last couple of weeks that they'll be enforcing the COVID-19 directions with a number of different fines. And obviously Liberty has um, expressed that they're very concerned about this. Can you talk us through which fines um, you're taking issue with and why? Um,
8: I think generally we're not in favour of having criminal sanctions um, to deal with a public health issue. Um, So in general, we think that, um, we've said a number of times, you can't police your way out of a pandemic. And a a concern that's been expressed not just by Liberty Victoria, but by lots of people um, and lots of organisations is that if you implement large fines for people there's then a risk for example with self-isolation or with people uh, going to work um, when they shouldn't be is that they um, they won't report if they tested positive because it then puts um, obligations on them such as self-isolating such as not being able to go to places Um, and because a lot of people are in quite precarious work situations. We've seen that the way that it seems this second wave has spread is through individuals who have insecure work and who don't necessarily have paid sick leave um, and who don't really um, have much for say in terms of their hours of work and things like that. So the concern is really that fines punish people who are already quite vulnerable um, in society. The second concern that we have is that these directions that are issued by the Chief Health Officer um, or by the Deputy Chief Health Officer, they're very complicated directions. They're documents that are often in excess of 10 pages with different clauses that interact in different ways and then individual directions interact with other directions as well and um, they're very difficult to interpret um, and they're quite complex um, areas of statutory interpretation. So you're asking lay people, everyday people who have a lot of other things on their plate um, to undergo complex statutory interpretation and it might be that they make a mistake um, without any malice behind it um, and then they're punished for that mistake because the directions are so complicated. The flip side of that is, of course, you're also asking members of Victoria Police to undergo um, an exercise of complex complex statutory interpretation um, very quickly when they interact with someone. Um, and then, of course, lastly, a lot of these directions, un- although announcements have been made about the directions in advance and what the, the rules will be generally, the directions don't get uploaded until about the second that they start applying. So we've seen the concern, particularly this week, with childcare and with the the permits related to work, that businesses, individuals, families, um, everyday people don't know what the rules exactly are um, and they don't find out until the rules apply. And that makes it really hard for people to to plan ahead, to make sure that they are complying. Um, and again, it, it, it would operate unfairly because you're releasing the rules so late, but then you're... It, you, you're telling them these rules apply now, but we're going to find you if you don't get it right, even though you don't have that much notice of the rules. Um, the other thing, of course, is that often what is said in press conferences is not necessarily reflected in the directions. And we've seen that, particularly we saw that back in March with um, the publicity about a few fines um, for example there was a gentleman who was fined for um, driving out to do some mountain biking and he was fined by Victoria police but that was actually completely fined by the directions that were in place in March at that time and I understand that fine was withdrawn but um, it it seemed because what was said in a press conference um, Victoria police certain officers might have taken that to be what the rule is rather than what the actual directions are so that's really the main issue. You've got very complicated um, directions um, and it's very easy to make a mistake with those directions because they are complicated. But then you're setting up, that means that people get fined and they're usually people who are already struggling um, financially. A lot of people are at the moment um, because of things being closed, because of the limits on movement and things like that. So it's really adding an extra layer of stress uh, to
4: people in the current pandemic. Um, And so we're now in stage four lockdown in Melbourne and stage three in regional Victoria. Um, And last week, when that change happened, we saw this state of disaster being declared. Um, And so Victoria was already subject to a state of emergency because of the pandemic. Many concerns have been expressed by a lot of people about um, both state of emergency and state of disaster situations can you talk us through what this is all about and why it is concerning?
8: Um, well, a state of disaster means that the it, that the um, the minister, and I, I think it's the police minister, can direct that certain statutes um, don't apply in particular situations. So, even though you have particular statutes or or, um, or laws um, in place that have been passed by parliament, um, the declaration of a state of disaster means that if it's considered necessary by the relevant person um, those laws can be suspended um, for some time that's obviously concerning in a number of ways and something that was mentioned for example was that police might be able to come into houses without uh, warrants um, or things like that to ensure compliance and of course that that's quite that that is a bit concerning uh, in terms of people's rights to Privacy and and the the integrity of their property, Um, as well of course, given that we are in an unprecedented time, we completely appreciate at Liberty Victoria that um, there are going to be some rights that will have to, in some ways, be um, uh, not um, trying to think of the right word um, that um, they have to give way in in a sense um, to. The greater good in people's health. Um, but whatever um, limitations there are on people's human rights, those are, still need to be necessary and proportionate. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, there's a concern that perhaps um, there might be direction that the Charter of Human Rights doesn't apply anymore um, in the current uh, circumstance. And that is, of course, concerning. There, there are, of course, now limitations on assembly, limitations on people's movement, um, limitations on um, Uh, people being able to go about their everyday lives. And as long as those limitations have a public health basis, um, and are necessary to support that public health basis, then we understand why it's necessary. But the concern is is that we might slip into um, the implementation of particular rules that don't necessarily have a public health basis. So an example is the curfew at the moment. Brett Sutton, as I understand, even said at a press conference that the the implementation of the curfew is to help enforcement by Victoria Police, the directions, that there's no actual... um, Basis in health in terms of particular times make you more vulnerable to contracting or spreading mm. um, COVID nineteen. Um, so that that's a bit concerning there that um, you have that, this kind of limitation and um, and and the reason for it is to help enforcement rather than um, it seems a, a public health basis. Um, mm. So so there are main concerns.
4: I guess I'm wondering how do we. What is the point? Like, How do we ascertain what is and isn't an appropriate impact on our human rights? If it's Because, well, and, and how do we stop that or how do we fight that?
8: That's It's a really good question and, and I don't think I have the answer and I think we're all learning. <laughs> yeah, sorry, um, huge all, question. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think we're, you know, at Liberty we're very appreciative of that this is an unprecedented time and mm. that, that things are moving very quickly um, and that. The government and public servants and Victoria Police are working very hard, really all towards the same goal, which is mm-hmm. getting the numbers under control and ensuring that everyone is healthy and safe. Um, I think that what was quite... At the beginning, there was a real focus in March on, um, as he said, enforcement and quite strict enforcement and a lack of discretion. Um, the... Uh, Shane Patton at at that time in March said that some of the media um, on Victoria Police back in March and April and May had reflected quite badly and the public started to lose confidence and he Mm. then implemented that really Victoria Police should should consider being more discretionary in some uh, instances and I think that's sort of gone backwards again with Sage 4 and I think that it's still important that um, of course, there are going to be blatant breaches, and and people should not be rewarded for breaching things blatantly. Um, but then there are other instances where I think um, there is room for discretion to be shown. What has been quite concerning, and and the most recent, um, there's a parliamentary inquiry at the moment into the COVID nineteen response, and they've just released an interim report. And in there, they noted that that most of the fines um, have been handed out in more vulnerable communities. So I think the city of Greater Dandenong has the highest number of fines. And of course, the more wealthy um, or um, less disadvantaged suburbs, such as the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, have not had very many fines. Um, uh, handed out shocking, at all. So shocking. It, it, it's, it's, very, it, it's shocking, it's concerning. And I, and I guess that, that has been an issue all along that, Really, who is most vulnerable here are young people, uh, people of colour, um, people who are already disadvantaged. Um, highly encourage your listeners to have a look at the COVID policing website, too, which has been collecting stories mm-hmm. of. Um, people who um, have been stopped by police unfairly. Um, we saw that there was a bail application back in April where there was an Aboriginal man um, who was fined um, for sleeping on a park bench and he was homeless. Um, and so so those kind of things are really what concern us. And we hope that despite the fact that we're all looking to move towards the same goal, we hope that there is still encouragement by the upper echelons of Victoria Police for people to exercise their discretion because we are all suffering in this um, time Mm. and we are all wanting to move towards same goal. Um, And the hope is that there's some reflection about who is impacted the most um, by tough policing in these Mm. instances and whether those impacts have the public health benefits um, uh, that they say they have. So the hope Mm. is that there is a consideration there.
4: Which brings us appropriately to my final question for you, um, which is about COVID. Um, unfortunately, having really well and truly entered the Victorian prison system, um, both adult yes. and youth prisons, what um, what does Liberty think the appropriate response is here?
8: Well, Liberty's view is is that for people who have um, who are vulnerable, who might have comorbidities, um, who have disabilities. Um, vulnerable children, vulnerable uh, women, vulnerable um, uh, people of colour or Aboriginal people, that those um, who, ha- who are able to be released, um, who may be serving non-violent offences or might be very close to the end of their uh, sentence, if they are sentenced, should be released. Um, for those who are on remand, we hope that um, as many bail applications as possible can be brought on and that supports can be put in place to help people uh, being granted bail because um, as we've seen overseas in the US and the UK once COVID-19 comes into prisons it spreads very very quickly Um, and we do have a lot of vulnerable people in custody. Um, There's been a decrease recently in the numbers of prisoners because um, there are more bail applications so more people well maybe not more bail applications but more people Mm -hmm. being granted bail and possibly also um, people being sentenced to more community-based sentences because of the impact that COVID-19 has on prisons, uh, prisoners. Um, and really, we, we do need to release those who we are able to release who are close to finishing their sentences and who are vulnerable. Um, we have real concerns about COVID-19 spreading widely in prisons and um, the impact that that will
9: have on quite vulnerable people.
4: Mm. It's an interesting... Um... An interesting thing to watch change as well, it sort of gives us maybe a roadmap for the future once the pandemic is over, maybe prison is not always the answer. <laughs> yes,
8: I, I think that there are a lot of lessons that we can all learn mm. out of this and, and hopefully we do learn uh, and, and change things rather than continue on the path um, mm. when it comes to over-criminalisation and um, using prisons as the only answer. Mm. Um, there are other ways of of dealing with what are quite complex criminal problems.
4: Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us, Julia. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. The Queen Victoria Women's Centre is calling all
3: us to join us and make a fuss. Make a Fuss is a crowdsourced Us project looking for submissions on the theme of women's silence. If you've experienced a time when you didn't want to make a fuss, why not get crafting and make some noise? For more information, go to qvwc.org.au and click on Make a Fuss. Submissions close August 19th. Queen Victoria Women's Centre is a 3CR supporter. a song by the late and great Nina Simone titled Baltimore.
9: Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's
8: precious forests. For over 15 years we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains. And the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunna and Bidwell and the Nara people and that
7: sovereignty was never ceded. a 3CR supporter.
3: we are listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. That's 8.55am. Now we're going to hear from um, some audio that was taken from a 3CR show called In Your Face. And um, the presenter, Benedict, uh, interviews Justine Dalla-Riva, who's the CEO of the Victorian Pride Centre. And in the interview... Uh, they discuss the centre's community vision.
10: Well, Justine Della River is the first CEO of the Victorian Pride Centre, which is currently under construction. And Justine begins our interview by describing the journey that she's been on that led her to the role.
9: Thanks, James. Um, wow, so I started uh, over two years ago. Um, i uh, was really fortunate to um get the position of communications advisor, so I have a long uh, history in the in the not for profit um in the communications and marketing area uh, and I saw this amazing opportunity to to work for the Victorian Prime centre pop up and I put my hand up and got the role. And so that first year of um, working for the Pride Centre, my role was to really try and articulate to the community what the Pride Centre was going to be, um, what it was going to mean for the LGBTIQ community, uh, and how people could get on board. And so that was my first year. And then um, at the end of last year, uh, the board made the decision to um, create the acting CEO role um, and again I put my hand up and said I really want the opportunity uh, to lead this amazing uh, and unique project and they um, you know gave me the, the opportunity to show them my, my wares in terms of uh, the CEO role and then just recently I went through a um, competitive uh, process uh to secure the the permanent role as CEO so uh i'm really proud and and kind of very feeling very humbled to to be in the role and to to lead what i think is going to be a really uh significant and iconic place um not just for the lgbtiq community but i think um for the broader community as well because it's going to represent uh, a place where people feel valued and and respected and welcomed so that's you know kind of where, um, uh, why I'm here and uh, and what I'm hoping to do.
10: You mentioned what the centre will mean for the community beyond inclusion that you just hinted at. Uh, what else will it mean?
9: Well, the the vision for the centre has always been to be the most loved and well known and visited home for the LGBTIQ community. Uh, and I think, you know, as far as visions go, when you kind of unpack them and what do, you know, what does that actually mean? Um, I see a centre, um, and an organisation that's going to empower individuals and communities to kind of fully engage in society by providing a place where people feel valued and respected and celebrated and safe. Um, and we're going to do that through things like facilitating access. Uh, to the services and the organizations that'll be in the, in the pride center that will be resident orgs. Um, through those services, sort of innovating and connecting with each other, um, creating access for smaller groups and, you know, emerging groups in the community where they can also, um, come together and learn from each other and, you know, focus on different and important, um, uh, issues for the community, um, and most importantly, it's going to be a place of social connection. So I don't know uh, if many of your listeners, listeners know about kind of the, the way the centre is going to, to be activated um, on the ground floor, for instance. Um, you know, the building will be open to the public, people will be able to walk in, um, they'll be able to grab a coffee, they can view the gallery space, which we hope to utilize to um champion, you know, queer artists, um, and then at the back there'll be a theaterette, for example, where again we'll want to champion queer performances. Um, but that theaterette at the back, which is a multi purpose space you know, it might be used during the day uh, for a Pilates class, or uh, for a forum um, or a workshop debating, you know, issues of equality. So, it, so the centre itself will also be a great place for social connections.
10: So, it's got a really strong community development focus.
9: Yes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because the, the, the centres come from community. So the whole concept of the Pride Centre, um, you know, came out of community, came out of organisations working in the community, um, in the LGBTIQ space, um, wanting, a uh, wanting a home, wanting, um, you know, that sustainability and that, um, uh, uh, you know, opportunity to come together and work together more collaboratively. Um, so in a sense, you know, it's it's what the communities ask for that, you know, that we're trying to deliver.
10: Tell us about the organisations that will be housed at the Pride Centre.
9: Yeah, so we've got um, uh, letters of offer or we're going through the, the leasing negotiations at the moment with um, a number of major LGBTIQ uh, organisations, so, uh, Joy FM, for example, which is, you know, Australia's one and only LGBTIQ radio station will be broadcasting from the Pride Centre. So we're pretty excited about that. Um, another community radio station like yourself. So, you know, it's great to be able to support that community radio aspect. Um, Switchboard, who is, uh, Victoria's statewide, um, uh, online and phone uh, counselling support service. They'll have their administration uh, office in the centre, the Melbourne Queer Film Festival, um, as well as Thorn Harbour Health, which is, um, you know, the LGBTIQ community's, um, you know, pre and foremost um, uh, allied and health uh, community service. Uh, and we've also got, um, Transgender Victoria. So we're trying to to really bring together a whole range of organisations um, that provide services to all the uh, all the sectors of our community, um, so that everybody you know feels welcomed, uh, welcomed, and included.
10: What are some of the biggest challenges in putting this uh, amazing project together?
9: I, I think just the sheer complexity, really, of, of a project of this size. Uh, because it's more, it's more than just building, building a building. Um, it's about, uh, you know, that aspect of activating it, making it a, a vibrant, um, community hub, um, where, uh, those organizations, uh, can work together, that they can, you know, build their own, uh, capacity, uh, where we can provide, you know, new and innovative services. So I think, I think it's, you know, it's just that there's there's a lot of layers to to creating, you know, Australia's first pride centre. So I think that's probably one, you know, from my perspective, one of the biggest challenges is, um, you know, it's not just about, you know, constructing a building.
10: Where is the centre at financially? Uh, Are there some financial worries or, or is all that sorted?
9: Oh, we've been very lucky in uh in terms of uh the state government providing um significant foundation funding uh for the construction of the center uh and we've also secured um a financing or a loan uh from uh treasury corp uh so from a um you know construction uh, construction or project construction budget um we're on um we're on budget to to build within our within our means, um, we've had to do you know a bit of value management as any sort of construction um, project needs to do. And so, you know, at times we've you know gone to community, uh, you know, seeking their financial support. At the moment, we've got a thing on the website called the Pride Registry where people can buy um, a, a jug or a set of glasses for the kitchen on the on the first floor. Um so you know, so we've balanced, you know, between um, you know, the cost of construction as well as the what will be the future cost of, of running the center. Um, but we're in a very um sustainable space moving forward uh because we've been um able to secure tenants such as Star Health who'll take up the second floor of the Pride center They're, they're a commercial tenant or what we, we sort of call a commercial tenant um, that will help uh, to um, subsidize to a certain extent the, the rents and the, um, from our LGBTIQ community organizations. So um, that's been um, a really important part of the, the vision of the center is that long-term financial sustainability.
10: In terms of the centre's design, uh, what are some of the sustainability issues that have come up and how will you be managing them? Uh,
9: in terms of when you say sustainability, do you mean from an environmental perspective?
10: Absolutely, yeah.
9: Yeah, so part of our work with um, uh, the City of Port Phillip, so the City of Port Phillip um, provided, uh, well, um, through the EOI process, they provided um, uh, the land or they've gifted the land and and part of our agreement with them besides us, you know, running the Pride Centre as a Pride Center for the next you know twenty odd years, um, was that we needed to create a green uh travel plan. Um and so that green uh travel plan is one of the aspects or the environmental sustainability aspects that um we've incorporated into the building. And so there's things that um uh, that we've done in terms of, um, for instance, uh, there's water tanks in the, in the basement, so they've been put in. Uh, we've got, uh, showers on the mezzanine floor, um, that are both fully, um, gender neutral and, and accessible. Uh, on the rooftop, we've got design for the, for the solar panels. Uh, we're also looking at, um, being able to establish a community garden. Uh, So there's a range, yeah, there's a range of things that that we've um, incorporated into the design, but also that we're hoping to incorporate into the way in which people interact with the building.
10: And of course, the the building uh, is in St Kilda. Uh, Tell us about the process that led uh, Pride to decide on on St Kilda being the location for the Pride Centre.
9: Well, yeah, so at the beginning uh there was an uh, e o i process uh and four i think four councils all uh submitted um their intention to um house or have the pride center located in the in their municipality, and then an independent um, uh, group uh reviewed those um uh reviewed those applications uh against a set of criteria and uh the city of Port Phillip was the one that um was selected in the end.
10: Fantastic. And part,
9: and, and I'll probably just add in part because also um you know the the St Kilda has, has a very long history of um welcoming the LGBTIQ community and especially on uh on Fitzroy Street. Um there's a number of um you know places that the community uh, frequented and really, the the Pride Centre is actually built on Munro's um, restaurant, which was a place that the trans community used to used to um, meet uh, back in the 70s and 80s.
10: Fantastic. Look, I take my hat off to you. It must be very difficult at time managing all of these uh, different stakeholder interests in the project in the Pride Centre, especially among the tenants.
9: Oh, look, the the, the tenants, the, the local community in St Kilda, um, everybody has been um so positive and um so excited about uh the project and about um the creation of a Pride Centre. So I think, you know, I've been and, and the organization more board, they have been really lucky to to have the the support and, and the enthusiasm and um, the excitement of of you know organizations within the within the sector wanting to come in um and just the general community um recognizing the value that uh, that they think the pride center is going to bring um uh, to them and and to you know to Victoria more broadly
10: what are the impacts of Victoria's stage 4 coronavirus restrictions on the construction of the pride center
9: yeah, so at the moment the team at Hanson Youngkin are going through uh, the restrictions and understanding um, where we, where our project sits. Uh, so they're doing a, a piece of work at the moment to understand the different um, aspects of the restrictions and how that's going to um, have an impact on their program of work. So that, that piece of work's really important. There's a few things that, that need to be, uh, clarified, um, at the moment regarding those restrictions. So at the moment we're you know, we're waiting for the team to do that critical, critical piece of work so that, you know, we'll be better able to, you know, communicate and understand the implications of the, of the stage four on, um, uh, on the schedule of works and on the opening.
10: What are some of those areas that need clarification with the construction?
9: Oh, so for instance, just how we're going to work with the subcontractors, so I don't know if you know but on on construction sites, if um, uh, sub, subcontractors are only to work on one particular site, and so that has an impact on on your program of works and, and that's conversations that the, the builders need to have with the subcontractors.
10: So when can we expect the Pride Centre to open?
9: Well, uh, originally, or at the moment, the the practical completion date was the 29th of October. That's when you know the builders are to hand over the hand over the keys and and all of the tenant organisations um, uh, can come in. But you know, as we know, given you know the announcement this week. Um, uh, you know, at that date, will shift, um, but you know, to to where it shifts at the moment, we're not we're not 100% sure, and we need to do that that work that programming work.
10: Justine Della River, thank you so much for talking to me today on 3CR, and congratulations on your new role as CEO of the Victorian Pride Centre.
9: No, thank you, James, and thank you for the opportunity to um, to come on 3CR and to to talk to your listeners.
3: Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501 weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's zero four three four one three six five zero one, Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. In light of the devastation that's happened in Lebanon just last week in terms of the explosion, we've decided to include um, some information about the history of Lebanon. Um, and this, we've drawn some audio from a 3CR show called Tuesday Home Time, and that's presented by Jan Butlet. Um, she actually interviewed way back in on the 12th of May of this year, Dr. Tim Anderson, to talk about the history and present of Lebanon. And I think this is really important to understand, um, to understand how devastating and destructive this explosion really is to the Lebanese people.
0: Today, we look at the recent history of Lebanon with Dr. Tim Anderson. Tim, the borders of the contemporary Lebanon are a product of the Treaty of Service in 1920, but it goes right back to 1916, this sykes Pico agreement, so certain countries had their plans well in place long before the end of World War One.
11: That's true. Of course, the First World War was really a conflict between empires, and it ended with the fall of, well, the Russian Empire fell with the Bolshevik Revolution, but then the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Ottoman Empire were effectively defeated in the First World War, and... The French and British empires and the emerging North Americans began to take out slices of those former empires. So, the British and the French in particular carved up the Middle East or between them what they considered was theirs after they defeated the Ottoman Empire. And basically, Britain took Iraq and Palestine, and the French took Syria and Lebanon, basically. They divided it up even the smaller pieces, basically. But there was a period. An interval which they called a mandate which they got from the League of Nations from the Paris Treaty in 1919 until after the Second World War where they were colonizing those parts of the Middle East basically and and so Lebanon and Syria didn't fully get their independence from France until 1946 and then of course we've got another story with Iraq and Palestine
0: just reading one commentary the resulting order inherited by the Middle East of the day sees a variety of states whose borders were generally drawn with little regard for ethnic, tribal, religious or linguistic considerations. Often a patchwork of minorities, there is a natural tendency for such countries to fall apart unless held together by an iron grip of a strong man or a powerful central government. How did Lebanon fare?
11: Well, I would actually interpret it a different way to that because, uh, in fact, there were plans, proposals to divide up as far as possible on the basis of the colonial powers had always done this. They divided up Ireland and the Middle East. They divided up countries, often using ethnicities to try and keep them separate, whereas there was a plan back at the time of the fall of the Ottoman Empire for a more united Arab confederation, for example. But the colonial powers didn't want that. Lebanon, in a sense, was carved out of Syria to create an artificial majority of Maronite Christians, in the same sort of way that the north, part of the north of Ireland was carved out of Ireland at the time of Ireland getting its independence, to weaken Ireland and to keep a foothold for the British there. So in the same way that you've got that festering sore in the north of Ireland there, still with the British occupation, you've got the same sort of thing with Lebanon and the French and also, of course, Palestine and Israel and the British, basically, they carved up those. Pakistan and India also. They carved them up so that there wouldn't be a strong united nation there, basically. So Lebanon uh, is a very small country, which was only about 5 million people, which now, of course, the demographics have changed, and so there is no longer a Maronite Christian majority, but it's been adjusted back on a sectarian basis that they call a confessional system, where everyone is identified according to their religion and it's created a very fragile and weak um, political system, which I think was the aim, basically. This was the the French plan back in in the day. A
0: very small area of the world, but a very important area
11: of the world. Well, just like Palestine, you see. Palestine and the creation of a British colony in Palestine, um, a Jewish colony, was intended and still is intended to be a foothold for the Western powers, initially Britain and later on the U.S., to have a foothold there and to control the region through that little part of the case of Palestine, the Arab world.
0: And how did the Lebanese people live under French mandate? How were they treated?
11: There were some new opportunities because there were ambitions in the whole Arab world to gain independence from the Ottomans and then from the French also. So there was a long history of resistance um, in Lebanon and Syria to the French. Uh, There were... Armed rebellions. The French reconstructed their colonial administration. They called it different names. They even called it the Republic and independent countries at different times. But as I said, the French were it wasn't really able to claim independence until the French were driven out, and that was in 1946. After the Second World War, too, the French wanted to go back to its colonies to keep all their colonies, despite the rhetoric of national self-determination after the First World War, after the Second World War. But they were driven out by resistance movements eventually in um, in the mid-1940s.
0: Was it a bloody conflict over a number of years?
11: Yes, it was. There was a thing called the Great Arab Revolt in the 1920s, led by Sultan Pashar al Atrash in Syria, for example. There were a number of insurrections through that whole time. By the way, it's important to notice, this is a general feature, that... The struggle against colonial rule was precisely what brought groups together. For example, it was the solidarity between um, Druze nationalists and Arab uh, rebels in Syria that brought the Syrian group together. Syria is a a mixture of different um, large minorities, and uh, it's become a pluralist state. It's always been a pluralist part of the world, but it became a pluralist state. It reinforced that commitment to pluralism through the struggle against the French.
0: Just years after independence, 1948, the establishment of the State of Israel, that's been an ongoing issue for Lebanon, hasn't it?
11: Well, of course, it's a festering sore in the entire Middle East. The entire Middle East is destabilised because Israel there is, on the one hand, it is a uh, it's a European colony by the Zionists who conceived of it in the 19th century during the colonial colonial era. The Zionists wanted a slice of the British colonial world back at that time. But it's also, very importantly, a launching pad for Britain and its successor, the USA, to have a foot in that world and to try and control that world.
0: And then the refugees from Nakba.
11: That's right. The relations with the Zionist colony in Palestine South with the ethnic cleansing that was going on of the Palestinian people. And that's why that poisoned the relationship with all of their neighbours, with Lebanon, with Syria, with Iraq. And so effectively, there's never... Re- and the Jewish communities that existed in the Arab countries were had their own problems. They had to decide whether they were going to be part of the, the Arab world that they were in or whether they would migrate to Israel. So it created and still... Is the centre of the stabilisation in that region, and that was the intention. Really, that the last thing that the big powers want was the Arab countries to get together, and and that's why through a whole range of different mechanisms, including the the nuclear, the attempt to impose some sort of controls over the uh, the nuclear industry in Iran, also. We're intended to stop cooperation between those countries. The U.S. occupation of a part of southern Syria at Al-Pantz is precisely intended to stop close cooperation between Iran, Iraq and Syria. That's been the preoccupation of the colony in Palestine and also the U.S. to try and prevent a coordination and and unity between the different forces in the Arab and Muslim world. How
0: did Lebanon cope with a huge number of refugees coming from
11: Palestine? Not very well in many respects. I mean, Lebanon itself is a country of emigres. You know, it's like Ireland in a way that there are more Lebanese outside Lebanon than inside Lebanon, but there were huge waves of refugees into Lebanon and really an ongoing problem because... With the confessional nature of the Lebanese system, they aren't accommodated very well in Lebanon at all. They're deprived of rights because they aren't Lebanese citizens. And also the Arab countries don't want to totally assimilate Palestinians because it's seen as a way of them giving up their nationality, their Palestinian nationality. Whereas in Syria, for example, the many, many um, refugees from the Nakbalin from the Holocaust that was inflicted on the Palestinian people with the the ethnic cleansing of Israel, they maintain their Palestinian identity, but they have the same rights as other Syrians in terms of being able to work and so on and to own property and so on. Whereas in Lebanon, they don't have those same sorts of rights. And so there are these things called camps, called actually they've become big suburbs of Beirut, for example, and some other parts of the country where Palestinians live, but they don't have the same rights in terms of working, in terms of owning property.
3: You're tuned into to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Radio. That's 855 AM. And right now we're hearing some audio that was recorded in May from Tuesday home time. And it's an interview with Dr. Tim Anderson. And it was about, it was before the explosion, but it was about the current climate and history of Lebanon. And just in this last little snippet, Tim talks about the effects of regional wars on the current climate. And I think it's really important to understand how the history of Lebanon has impacted, how they'll recover, and why it's so important, if you can, to donate and help out for the Lebanese community.
11: Regional war that has been the root of undermining the Lebanese economy. And, and Lebanon now is in a terrible state. They're facing serious problems of hunger. They're worse off in many respects than Syria, despite the almost 10 years of war in Syria because they simply don't have the public infrastructure. They haven't got a strong government which can subsidize bread and provide public services and, and a public health system for people. It's much more critical to have money in Lebanon. So Lebanon is really going through a terrible financial and economic crisis at the moment.